0: Over the past year or so, um, we've been together as a family reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. We've been we have pop up books, we have little kids' story versions of it, we have the long full version of it, we have an audiobook version of it. So we've been listening to all uh, all of all of those. Um, and one recently that we've uh, read. Uh, and listen to is uh, a book in that series called "The Horse and His Boy." The Horse and His Boy is chronicling the the story of a of a kid named Shasta that uh, has had a, a horrible uh, upbringing. He doesn't know his parents. He was living uh, in uh, under the care of a pretty abusive um, uh, master. Uh, He makes his way to escape and goes through lots of troubles and suffering, only to find himself mixed up and caught up in helping to deliver uh, the kingdom of Narnia from uh, an attack by an opposing um, nation. But in the midst of this, as as Shasta finally makes his way close to Narnia, he's trying to get a message to the the king uh, of a, a neighboring community so that they can help in the battle. He finds himself lost. No one is around him anymore. And he begins to despair. And this is what he says. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Can you identify at all with Shasta? Maybe not now, but at some point in your life where when you look back and you reflect on your story and what has happened or what you're going through now, the suffering that you're you're facing, the, the struggles and difficulties that are going on, If that wasn't enough, you begin to look around at other people's lives, people who are close, who maybe grew up in your in your town or in your family, who live across the street, who you work with. And it seems like everything always goes right for them. They don't have the same struggles and difficulties you do. And you look and you wonder and you're you're thinking maybe these people are even in your church. And you're like, both of us are following Jesus. Both of us are hoping and trusting in Him, but it seems like all I get in my life is suffering. Everything goes wrong for me. And it seems like no matter what they do, they always land right side up and blessing seems to be heaped on them and they seem to be uh, sheltered and guarded and delivered from suffering. This can seem confusing. Confusing. Shasta was confused. We can be confused. Confused at what Jesus is doing in our lives and in the world. Confused in thinking that it seems like we don't understand what Jesus is doing and when we look at it, sometimes it can seem that Jesus is contradictory in the way that He works in our lives and the way that He looks, works in other people's lives. And we can begin to wonder... Do we really trust him? Can we really submit to these purposes that Jesus has for us when they're confusing and they seem contradictory? If you have questions like that, like I do, and hopefully this morning, this chapter, this portion of this chapter that we're going to look at in Acts, will help bring some clarity for us as this chapter in Acts encourages us to submit to Jesus' purposes for us and to trust Him, knowing that it will result in His glory and our good. So, if you would, turn with me to chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Uh, This is in the New Testament. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, you'll find this on page, or at least where we are, on page 918. We're going to be picking up in verse 32. Remember last week, what we saw uh, in uh, the beginning of chapter nine is. uh, um, The enemy number one of God's people was a, a man, Saul of Tarsus. He encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was going to destroy God's people and seeing the glory of Jesus and experiencing the grace of Jesus. This enemy of Christ becomes one of his servants. Um, and uh, we now in following up on that are, are picking back up with another one of Jesus followers, um, Peter, who we learned about earlier in the book, who was one of the 12 authorized specific spokesmen for Jesus who are communicating and continuing to, to spread the teachings of Jesus and do the works of Jesus in the, the world Um, So let's pick up and see what is going on with Peter. Beginning in verse 32, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since little was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, Your Spirit working in Luke to give us this account of what Jesus continues to do in our world. Uh, we pray that we would see more of Him uh, glorify Jesus today, change us, that we also would glorify Him in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions. Uh, In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at this account, we're really struck by some amazing things that Peter's doing. I mean, did you notice first with this guy, Aeneas? He's been bedridden, paralyzed for eight years. He's not moving. He's not able to get up. Other people are having to take care of him. Peter comes in, it tells us, in verse 32, as he's traveling around and sharing the good news of Jesus, encouraging the believers. And he comes to Aeneas, and Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately, he rose. Peter comes, speaks to Aeneas. His paralysis is taken away. He gets up. And he walks if if that's not enough, then people hear about Peter being in Lydda and the people from Joppa call Peter and they bring him in because Tabitha, a great godly woman who has been loving the, those who are less fortunate than her in the area, she's died. They're thinking and wondering, maybe maybe Peter could do something here. Because the way they take care of, the, of her body, it, it points to the fact that there, there's some sort of, of hope that something more will happen because they don't immediately go through the full burial process and take and do something with her body. They anoint, they clean her, but then, then they set her in this upper room and they call Peter. And Peter comes. And notice what it says. Peter prays. And then he turns to the body. Notice Luke is emphasizing here She wasn't fainted. She hasn't passed out. He calls it a body. Remember, Luke is an historian. He's given us accurate historical eyewitness accounts of what is going on. She was dead. And Peter prays and he speaks to her and she comes back to life. A dead woman comes back to life. This is incredible. These these are not myths. These are not fairy tales. This is the work of Jesus. Remember what Luke told us at the beginning? of this two-part account, Luke and Acts, that he began to write about what Jesus had begun to do and teach. Now he's writing and telling about what Jesus continues to do and teach. Peter is not the one with the power to heal Aeneas. Peter is not the one with the power and the strength to raise up Tabitha from the dead. Jesus is the one at work. Jesus is the one who can enter into lives and deliver people from suffering. Do you notice the emphasis Luke puts here to show that it's Jesus who delivers from suffering? Notice what Peter says in verse 34 when Aeneas is healed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. The focus, the emphasis that Luke is wanting to draw, that Peter is wanting to draw, that it is Jesus who works in people's lives. It's the risen, ruling, reigning Christ who brings and delivers people from suffering. But the same thing is true over with uh, with Tabitha, with Dorcas later on in chapter nine. Notice in verse forty, Peter puts them all outside and he knelt down and he prayed. He prays to Christ to be the one who would bring and work power, who would enter into the the suffering and the devastation in in Tabitha's life and bring her back to to life. What Luke is showing us here is that Jesus is also the one who's active here, entering into the suffering that that, Tabitha has experienced and delivering her from it. In fact, the way that this account happens, uh, um, Luke is is showing us how this is very much like the way that Jesus healed paralyzed people in Luke's gospel, how Jesus raised people from the dead. In fact, it it also is is, uh, echoing um, examples in the Old Testament of how God would enter into people's world. And through His authorized spokespeople, the prophets, particularly Elijah, this is very similar to what's going on here that was happening in First Kings chapter 17, where uh, uh, someone dies. They're laid in an upper room, just like Tabitha. They call for the man of God to come. He comes. He prays. The person has risen to life. And they say, this is how we know that the Word of God is in you. That the living God has come and worked and moving the point here from the echoes in the Old Testament, from the echoes in the, in the, in the work of Jesus earlier in the Gospels and through the, the account that Luke gives us here, that it is Jesus who enters in the people's lives and delivers them from suffering. It is his work. It is what he does. That may be great amazing here. But when we see the amazing things that Jesus does and that he can do, that can lead to great confusion when we look in our lives and the lives of others and realize and have to deal and wrestle with the fact that he doesn't always do it. Jesus does not always deliver his people from suffering. In fact, we see something that might even seem completely contradictory when we compare this to what has just been told Saul in the chapter, earlier in the chapter. Remember what we we saw about uh, Saul earlier, last week, where when uh, Saul's on his way to try to destroy the church, Jesus, the risen, ascended Jesus, appears to Saul, showing him his glory. And Jesus says this um, to uh, the guy Ananias who is going to encounter Saul later. And this is what uh, Jesus wants communicated to, um, to Saul. So he says to, uh, to Ananias in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. As soon as he delivers and redeems and saves Saul, when Jesus enters into Saul's life, what Jesus tells him is that suffering lies ahead for you, Saul. In fact, we see it begin to happen through the rest of the the chapter. Look at what what occurs in verse 23. Saul is going around. He's doing what Jesus has called him to do. He's proclaiming the message of the good news of Christ. He's not in rebellion anymore, but notice what happens in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They are seeking to pursue and destroy Saul. In verse 24, it goes down. They were watching the gates day day and night. In order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall. Lower him in, in a basket. Saul is not at peace. Everywhere he goes, he's concerned and worried. Will someone try to kill me? They're active. Will they succeed? He continues and goes on again. It brings it up again in verse 29. And he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, But they were seeking to kill him. If you know much about the rest of, of Saul's life, he accounts it as we go through Acts. We're going to see he suffers much more than just plots on his life. He's beaten. He's shipwrecked. He's stoned. He's imprisoned. He's left for dead. Suffering is brought in to his life. Jesus doesn't deliver him and prevent him from experiencing this suffering. In fact, Jesus is the one who brings this suffering into Saul's life. You notice that back in verse 16, 15 and 16. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Jesus is saying, I've chosen you, Saul, for a particular reason, and I am going to use you in a particular way. What is that way? You're going to take my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name. Part of what I'm calling you to and how I'm going to use you is through the suffering that I bring into your life. So here we have in the same chapter the account of two people where when Jesus enters into their world and their life, He works and brings about the deliverance from suffering. And we have somebody else who when Jesus enters and breaks into their life, what Jesus brings is suffering. This can be confusing. Confusing. We wonder what Jesus is doing in uh, a horse and his boy. As uh, Shasta continues to reflect on what is going on in his life, the sufferings and the struggles that he's faced. He's lost in the woods and he, he says out loud this comment about being the most unfortunate kid in the world. And all of a sudden he hears the sound of someone or something walking beside him. And uh, this voice, it's I'll just read this section of a horse and his boy. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and his face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or his mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Avarice and also how very long it had been since he had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you. There were at least two the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with avarice. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Avarice? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Shasta, as he's reflecting on his life and the sufferings and the things that he's facing, he's confused. And then when he hears this one that he has encountered, this lion who we find out later is Aslan, who was the one who is bringing this suffering into his, his life. He's confused and he wants to ask questions why this is happening to him and not other people. And Aslan's response is, I only tell you your story. You need to focus and trust on, in me on the story that I'm writing for you And rest in me in the midst of the confusion that you're facing. In the midst of what might seem contradictory, I am the king. I am the writer of the story. And what I have for them, I have for them. And what I have for you, I have for you. But you must know that I'm good. And you must trust me. Is this not very similar to the the questions that we have of Jesus who we can look at other people's lives and see He works. We know He can work. We've seen Him do it, delivering people from their suffering. We see it here in amazing ways. What could be more uh, devastating than death? Not just your own death, but also we experience suffering when we see the death of others. Yet Jesus works to bring these people, deliver them. But in Saul's life, He doesn't. He just brings more suffering. Does that bring confusion to you? Maybe like Saul, you right now are striving to be faithful to Jesus. You're trying to share the good news of Christ to your co-workers and to your family. But it doesn't matter how you phrase it, how kind you are, how long you've sought to build a relationship with folks, how much you've listened to them. Every time you open your mouth, it's met with nothing but persecution and rejection and ridicule. Yet you come and talk to some of your friends at church and it seems that no matter what they say, people are coming to faith in Jesus. They're celebrated in their workplace. It doesn't lead to them losing their job. They're promoted as Jesus is working in their life. And we may be confused and wonder, Jesus, why are you writing their story that way and my story this way? Maybe for you right now, there's the the suffering shows itself up in another way. Maybe you've been battling a particular sin or addiction for a long time. You've been wrestling it. You've sought accountability groups. You've been praying. You're memorizing scripture. You're doing all that you can to try to overcome and escape this suffering. And it continues to linger in your life and you're battling and you're going through it. And yet other believers, you know, and maybe your small group or close associates of friends that you have, and they don't seem to have these struggles they announce these struggles in your accountability group, but it seems they pray for one or two weeks and the Lord brings great deliverance and victory in, your li- in their life. And you're wondering, why is that their story? And this is my story. Maybe it shows itself up in relational conflict, spouse, friend, family. Maybe, maybe it shows it's, itself up In childlessness. You've been longing for a long time. You've been pleading before the Lord to provide you with a child. You've suffered under the loss of miscarriage after miscarriage. And you look at these other Christians in your church, and it seems like all they have to do is just drink a glass of water and they're pregnant again. Why is that their story? And not mine. What are you doing, Jesus? Or maybe you've been laboring and struggling and grieving uh, over singleness for a while, wondering when the Lord will bring that man or that woman into your life. And you look at all of your friends, and every single one seems to get married, married, married. You've been to a bunch of weddings. But none of them have been your way. And you wonder, why is this my story? Why is it this suffering that I continue to labor under, Jesus? And you seem to be delivering all these other people from it. Do you not care about me? Do you not love me? Am I not worth you working in my life in this same way? I know you can do it. I've seen it. We see it in the scriptures. Bring me a wife. You brought Dorcas back from the dead. I'm asking for somebody who's already alive. Can't you do that? And he says, trust me. Submit to my purposes for your life. But why? We might not always understand God's purposes, but we can see something in this passage that points us to things that we can cling to, that we can trust in, that we can look for, even when we don't understand it. The first is to see that whether Jesus is delivering someone from suffering or He's bringing suffering into somebody's life, the purpose... And the focus, at least one of them, is on his glory. Whether Jesus delivers you from suffering or he brings suffering, it results in his glory. Do you notice that in this passage? Look in verse 35. Aeneas, Jesus Christ, heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord the deliverance of Aeneas from the suffering that he was facing resulted in many, many, many people turning to Jesus. Jesus was glorified through the deliverance of Aeneas from his suffering. Look at what happens with Tabitha. She opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up calling the saints and widows. He presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, as it would if someone comes back to life. And many believed in the Lord. The result of this deliverance from suffering results in more glory going to God. In many ways, that, that's not too difficult for us to see. Of course Of course, when you bring someone back to life, it's going to result in your glory. We get that. I want more of that in my life. But that should lead us to think. What does it look like when you or I experience God's work of deliverance in big ways or small ways? What does it look like for us to live and to respond and speak about it in such a way That when we do experience those things, that it brings glory to the Lord. How do we talk about small little things that happen in our lives? In our family, we pray for a lot of boo-boos. We get a lot of band-aids, but we also pray for Jesus to heal and take away boo-boos. What do we do when it goes away? Oh, you know what? The body just heals itself. Neosporin is a miracle drug. And that door, the Explorer or uh, PJ mask Aid did the magic. No. In small ways, should we not begin to speak and say, even with our little ones, that Jesus is the one who worked and brought about this healing, that the glory would go to him. If, If not just in a small instance like that, what about when we are delivered from even bigger medical, relational issues that we face and struggle in our lives? Or just when we see the provision of the Lord on a day-to-day basis? Are our hearts, are our words, are our actions giving glory and acknowledging that it's Jesus who did this? It was not me. It was Jesus who was at work. But notice that the same thing is true for the suffering. It's not just that God gets glory and the purpose of it is to bring glory through delivering people from suffering. But we see it as as he brings suffering into people's lives. Look back at Saul in verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The purpose and the goal of why the Lord is saving Saul is that he would proclaim the name of Jesus. That As Saul is going through the suffering, as he's going before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel and telling them about Jesus, he will experience suffering. And through that suffering, we'll see as we go through Acts, more and more people will continue to hear about Jesus because of the suffering that Paul goes through. In fact, we saw it that over and over every time suffering is mentioned. The proclamation of the name of Jesus going forth is mentioned as well here. He's going to suffer for the sake of my name over in verse uh, 20, as he is proclaiming the name of Jesus saying he is the son of God. As it moves forward, what we begin to see is that as the days are passing in 23, that they're plotting to kill him. As it continues to go on, it says over and over that he's he's speaking and disputing against the Hellenists, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. More and more suffering comes into his life. But we notice that what happens in verse 31, that in the midst of this, both from Saul being moved from persecutor to one of Jesus' chosen instruments, that this is the result in verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. The church multiplied through the suffering of Saul and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Do we think that God's glory is worth us suffering. Are we willing, eager, to suffer for the Lord if that would result in His glory being moved forth and expanding throughout the, the world? I was, I've uh, been reading a book recently called, uh, I think it's called the only plane in the sky. It's a, a, an oral account of what was going on during nine uh, eleven, from uh, what was going on in the twin towers to what was happening in the Pentagon and the, the rescue operation and, and uh, the collapse and the aftermath and everything afterward. And really been struck as in reading this book to see, in, uh particularly at the World Trade Center, how many of. The 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 firemen and police officers uh, are are willing to enter into suffering to see people's lives saved. There's accounts of not just the guys who were on duty that morning going to the Twin Towers, but people who were completely on the other side of the river seeing the towers hit who, they're not working this day. It's not their job today. They leave the safety and comfort of their home. They leave being with their family. They drive across the bridge and the river to go into the Twin Towers, to do whatever they can, to go up into a building that is collapsing, that may really mean sure death for them, if it means that they could save one life. There were firefighters and and police officers who were there, who when the call came out to get out, the first tower fell. The second one's getting ready to go. Get out now and save your life. Some of them refused saying, I can't escape now. There's people here who still need my help. This is my identity. This is my calling. I am a firefighter for the New York Fire Department. And it is my job and my role to save lives. And if it means my suffering, it means my suffering. Some of you here know about that too. Ben, what's the motto for rescue swimmers? So others may live. live. Comfort so others may live. Big screen TVs chilling in the, the base on at, here in Elizabeth City so others may live? No. When everybody else is fleeing, when everybody else is hunkered down in their basement, storms are swirling, boats are sinking so others may live, our Coast Guard, members of our church, go and put themselves in harm's way willing to take on suffering because this is their calling. People need help. If that is the case for the lives of other people and realizing that there are people who aren't even followers of Jesus, who have this attitude about going in and putting willing, eager, Owning that as a part of their identity and their calling to enter into suffering so that others might live, so that lives might be saved. What about us who know of Jesus and who know of the greater salvation and deliverance that He offers and the calling that we have? That it's not comfort, it's not ease. It may mean that Jesus says to you, I am calling you to suffer for the sake of my name so that others may live and hear the good news of Christ. Is that a calling you are willing? That I am willing and eager to take? Is the glory of of Jesus spreading to those who don't know Him a good enough reason for us to accept whatever our King writes into our story, whatever our King brings into our world, whether it be deliverance from suffering or whether it means suffering. But notice, it's not just for God's glory. i close up with this. Jesus also brings both the deliverance and the suffering into our lives for our good. I mean, it's easy to see how deliverance of suffering works for our good, doesn't it? I mean, this dude can't walk. He can't move for eight years. Sure, that's for his good. Now he can walk. He can move around. He can make his bed. He can host a meal. He can run up and down the street. You're dead. You were dead and now you're alive. Of course, that's better for her. But notice there's there's more going on with that. Since it's Jesus who is the one who delivers from paralysis, it's Jesus is the one who delivers and brings one back from the dead. It's pointing to the work of what Jesus has come to ultimately do. Guess what? Dorcas isn't still alive. She later died. Aeneas, the same thing for him. But it's pointing us to Jesus, the work that he does. And when he is coming again to restore and redeem all things, Jesus is the one who will bring life forever, who will take away and do away with all the suffering in our world. Ultimately, what he is doing and that each little small deliverance, whether it's the healing of a scrape on your knee, miraculous account of deliverance from cancer, Is Jesus pointing us and reminding us that the work that He is doing will ultimately work out for our good when He comes to deliver and make all things right? But the suffering, the suffering for our good? Really? You see, the interesting thing about this suffering is... It also points to something that Jesus has done. Remember, Jesus isn't just, hasn't just kicked back sitting in the cool, air-conditioned gold rooms of heaven dictating, suffer, 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 oh, deliverance, suffer, 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 suffer. suffer. He entered into our world. He left the glories of heaven. He took on flesh to enter into our brokenness and our pain. The one who brings suffering into our lives brought suffering into his own life for us to deliver us, not just from sickness physically, from the consequences of our sin, which meant our separation from God and the suffering that Jesus came and entered into this world to take on ultimately will work for our deliverance. And each time Saul suffers, he's demonstrating and living out a life that's shaped and pointing to the cross. As he has the privilege of living a life that looks like Jesus' life, who suffers for the sake of the Gospel, who suffers for the sake of others who would come to know Him. Is that not ultimately for our good? That in the midst of our suffering, if it causes us to look back and be pointed to and remember and know what Jesus has done for us, what he continues to do for us, because remember, that's the point of Acts, what Jesus is continuing to do. And we look forward and anticipating what he will do. That that suffering reminds us in deeper and deeper ways of who Jesus is, of what he's done and how he is with us Now in the midst of our suffering. We may never see this side of heaven, how our suffering results in the glory of God. You may never see this side of heaven, how your suffering results in your good. But what we do know is the one who brings deliverance from suffering and the one who brings suffering suffered for us And He is returning for us. And we can trust Him in His goodness and submit to His purposes in our lives regardless of what it means because He loves us. He has written our story and He's written Himself into our story. This is the good news of the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You that uh, the Scriptures are true. We thank You that this isn't just something that somebody like C.S. Lewis or Dr. Seuss made up. This is history. In fact, Jesus came into our world. May we look and hope in Him. And we turn to Him in faith. Not in what we do, but in what He has done. Help us to rest and trust Him no matter what it may mean. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As the one who wrote our story was on his way...